This episode of the Get Fast podcast is brought to you by Trivelo Coaching, where we help triathletes and cyclists like you train smarter to race faster. You are joined as always by your host, former Australian Ironman champion, Jared Donnelly, and I am Jordan Donnelly. In this episode, it is a bit of a random episode because we've been having some great conversations uh, over the last few weeks, getting some great questions from mostly Trivelo athletes. We've spoken a lot about on, on the podcast how racing season is coming up. Uh, a lot of people have had a pretty funny year with training and thinking about racing. And there's a lot of questions uh, in this period about uh, what, where people are specifically at. You know, what are people aiming for? Where their current ability is at the moment? Uh, where their ability can get to in the short term and long term? Um, we've just had some uh, really good questions and conversations with athletes around uh, what's coming up over the next year. So we thought we'd actually take some of those questions uh, and apply them to this podcast and inform you the listeners uh some information that uh, you really find handy in terms of applying it to your own ability and what's next for you so we're really excited to get into some of those questions but as always firstly dad what's caught your attention in the last week great question jord uh it's probably a little bit out of date but uh the finish to the giro was incredible and i and i really was so excited about talking talking uh, about it last week and it's uh, i've had to hold on to all of my thoughts until this week um and of course now the the welter is on and and that's got got its own highs and lows and uh and uh good rides and bad rides uh, happening and but the giro is what caught my attention and uh who would have ever predicted that two second tier riders in the biggest teams of yumbo visma and ineos um would be challenging ineos, yeah. um Sorry, what did I say? Uh, Yumbo Vizma, which is what we're used to seeing yep. Roglic and Van Aert and stuff. But yeah, it was somewhere. That's right. Yeah. Um, um, vying for uh, the the Grand Tour victory. Um, and, and you know, Geraint Thomas was the main rider for Ineos and, um, and Kelderman was the main rider for Sunweb. And yet the next level riders you know, we're separated by a second or two coming into the last time trial. So there's so many things about that whole scenario that, yeah, that's what caught my eye. Yeah, the Jai Hindley story was uh, incredible. I personally had never heard of him until the Juro. Uh, he's, he's been a young gun Aussie, obviously, on a pro team. Uh, and a lot of other people in the cycling world would have heard of him. But when I was watching the start of the Juro in the first week, he was uh, in the top 10 after the first few climbs. I thought, gee, I don't know who this Jai Hindley guy is. I, um, as an Aussie, I thought it was great that he's in the top 10. And I went and looked him up on Instagram and he had like 3,000 followers or something on Instagram and just said pro team somewhere. You know, there wasn't much information about him online. Uh, and then the second week in the hills, he was still there. And then in the next minute, he was coming third. Uh, and the last week, he got himself into the uh, Maya Rosa going into the last stage. And he had a chance to win the Tour of Italy, a Grand Tour. Um, pretty incredible for him. And I actually checked his Instagram after that day and it had already blown up to about 10,000 followers on there. And I think a lot of people were going through the same experience I, I thought of him as well. Yeah, and look, another Aussie from Western Australia. So the Western Australians are doing well. Ben O'Connor, um, he had three sensational days in a row. He got second on one of the hill hill climb stages. Then the next day, he got on the break again and won. And then the third day, uh, which is where the GC contenders were were going hammer and tong, um, he was away in the break solo um, with you know less than a handful of kilometres to go. And he, he almost pulled off a third one, except for those guys absolutely hammering. Um, 
with Rowan Dennis leading the charge, he could have actually won two stages in a row and got and got second in another. So, you know, it was just an incredible um, performance by the two young Aussies, and that really caught my attention. And and uh, you know, it's almost like the changing of the guard, as uh, as we were talking about. You know, Nabali and Fulsang and all those guys just um, really. Um, just doing nothing in this tour and it's almost like the end of their career and and you're seeing a new uh wave of riders who are just not afraid to to ride differently and i was so intrigued by listening to david brailsford who was the instigator of sky the the boring method of riding everybody into the ground um so no one could attack and and you know sky won so many grand tours that way and and it was based on you know really good uh, coaching and, and uh, strategizing and um, yeah. And, and, and data and knowing your numbers and writing climbs and just writing people, you know, into the ground. And it, it was such a great, great way to win, to win races, but it was boring as anything. People just got so sick of it. And, and he was excited Like the interview they had after the, um, um, the guy from Ineos one, which was uh Tao Gagenhard. Tao which yeah, I, has a funny name, doesn't he? That is, yep. Um, the you know the exciting way that he ended up winning the tour um, was was that unpredictable. Have a crack and risk everything, um, and you know it paid off dividends. And he was having a ball as as the director. You know you could see the the enjoyment in his in his eyes and his um, and his comments as you know. The old style is boring. I think I heard him say, and you know, this is the way of the future. And you've still got to use your numbers um, uh, tactically, but but not have six or seven riders sitting on the front, just you know, just uh, blowing people up one by one. Um, just you know, being able to uh, to have some tactics that are that are different and, and exciting, and 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 people want to come and watch that. You know, that's that's what the sport's about. Not not the same old predictable style of riding. You know, race in, race out, and and I think cycling needs to to reinvent itself a bit, even though it's a hugely popular sport around the world. Um, you know, this is the future of of how races should be, and they should be all individual one day classics. You know, in a Grand Tour, um, and you know, the Giro has done that for years. I think better than the Tour de France has done. It's it's such a better spectacle, even though the Tour de France has got the reputation, and everybody loves the Tour, but um, the Giro has better races because there's so many opportunities for other people to, to either win stages or, or win the tour. Um, and whereas the Tour de France is, is a very predictable, obviously the best riders do eventually win. Um, but the Giro, it's kind of, you know, anybody's got an opportunity, which I love. And the Welter's the same. Um, and I, I think those stages of 250 to 300K stages, you know, they're a thing of the past. You're still going to get the same result if it's a flat sprinting stage whether you ride 250 or you ride 150, mm. um, you know, what, what, what's the point, you know, just trying to get riders to be on their knees by the end of three weeks. Um, so, you know, I think, I think there's, there's a limit to what you can do to riders and their health and, and wellbeing is kind of more important than um, in seeing who's the best survivor at the end. You want to see the best bike rider win rather than the, the person who can survive the, the three weeks. Um, so, so yeah, look. The other thing I want to say was Rowan Dennis's uh, fortunes over the years have been maligned a lot, and you know he's a three-time world champion on the time trial bike, and he he pulled out of a tour last year when he was riding with Bahrain Merida, stepped off the bike the day before the time trial, which he was expected to win, and he couldn't ride the time trial for nuts in that team 
um, as compared to when he won three titles. And it came down to the bike and the bike fit um, just didn't suit him with that team and the different bikes that they were using. And you wouldn't think it'd be that important. And it's one of those things that we've talked about many times for our triathletes and for our cyclists that even yourself, Jordan, and your brother, you know, you can create all sorts of injuries by having a really poor setup on the bike and you don't get the value out of the power you're pushing in the pedals if you're if you're not sitting well to push the right power if you're not aerodynamic to, to be you know slippery through the air to go faster and um, so there's so much in that even from the best time trialer in the world had a setup that you know basically stunk and he couldn't ride and that's you know he's changed teams again and here he is back to the best form that he's ever been in, in his life and seriously rode the whole peloton off his wheel bar the two you know Sunweb and uh and uh, his own rider his own teammate and you know there was a couple of stages there where he was the best rider out of the three of them except he was doing all the work um mm. and it was fantastic to see him come back and and that's kind of one of the topics that we want to talk about today is you know the fortunes of of athletes whether you're a triathlete a runner or, or a cyclist they they ebb and flow and it's how you it's how you manage all of that 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 determines what sort of future you have or or how enjoyable your sport is and you know if you're someone who's always half empty and negative you're not going to reap the rewards of when things go well you you've got to have a better positive outlook about everything you're doing and um and you know there's some of the things that I've witnessed firsthand as in the professional ranks so you know, it's, it's, it's so much more prevalent as an everyday cyclist, you know, who's just doing it as a recreational sport, you know, life's too serious to be, to be down the dumps about having, you know, some, some uh, periods where you're not able to train consistently and, you know, you've got injured or you've been sick. You've got to, you've got to put that in perspective and, and uh, you know, really make sure that when the opportunities come, you, you take them with both hands because, they can slip away very quickly and, you know, before you know it, you're growing very old and you've missed your opportunities. Ineos did that, didn't they? They um, really didn't have the Tour de France that they wanted and they came back and made the most of the Duro. Yeah, it's one of the points we made at the end of the Tour, how shocking they, they went in the Tour de France and how disappointed they would have been. And we both said, you know, look out, I bet you they make amends. They can either do one or two things and not really have much of a season in 2020 because everything's going against them. Like It seems like everything's going against everybody in the world at the moment with COVID. But boy, did they turn that around. They won a record eight stages. Um, Ghana won four stages. They won the Tour. Um, you know, the last time they did that was when Froome in 2012 at the Tour de France, they won seven stages and they, and they won the Tour. So they've eclipsed their previous best uh, Grand Tour performance. You know, they won over a third of the stages in the, in the Tour, which is, what a comeback. You know, that's, that's, that's not uh, going away and crying in the corner. That's coming out and so showing people, you know, we might not have done well there, but now look at us, um, which I really admire. Yeah, two things really stood out to me uh, in the Giro. One is that it reinforced the point that you always make about whether it's a one-day race or a three-week tour, the Giro really highlights managing your effort because almost every year we see a different top 10 in the first week and a half to the top 10 in the second week and a half or a massive reshuffling in that top 10 order. You know, in the Tour de France, like you said, the best riders stay at the front the whole time and the best rider normally ends up winning, whereas always the whoever's leading in the end of week two is generally blows up and he's six minutes behind at the end of week three because uh, it's so hard to manage your effort in those grueling stages for three weeks and we saw that again on show in that final week of the Giro where 
ended up being the, the two, uh, first and second, Jai and Tao, um, battling it out. But even they were on their limit on certain days. Uh, and then the second point about it all was the domination of, um, or just how great it was to see Australia so uh, present throughout the whole Giro. You know, uh, Simon Clark was in about 17 breaks. <laughs> he was almost in a breakaway every single day. Uh, Rowan Deminis was one of the strongest riders, as you said, in the most important stages. Um, two boys from WA, you know, showing their guns uh, in the hill stages and then a chance for one of them to actually win. Uh, it's, it's absolutely incredible. It was, uh, it's funny you should say that because there was one stage, I think it was the penultimate stage where um, Rowan Dennis was on the front, Ben was up the road and Jai was on his wheel and then uh, they caught Ben and so there were four riders left. Three of them were Australian. That's incredible. Mm. That, that hasn't happened in a long time. Um, mm. And you know, Simon Clark the day before, as you say, was in the, the break the day before and you know, he was in everything going, just trying, trying to get himself up in, into a stage win, which you can't knock him for, for trying. So, you know, the, the cycling, um, the young cyclists in Australia are, are really, you know, performing quite well uh, internationally and uh, it's really great to see. One disappointing thing, which we won't we won't harp on this, I just thought it was worth mentioning, uh, was the disappointment that the commentator showed, and I agree with this. Uh, he was a British commentator, but he spoke about how on the Sunday morning when Jai was in the pink jersey with a chance to win the stage in the last time trial, he opened up the West Australian, uh, the newspapers in Australia, and there was not mm. one article on it. You know, and he's, he's in a chance to win one of the biggest grand tours in the world. Um, and there was obviously a lot of articles about the AFL grand final, which is you'd expect, but you'd think there'd be one article on it. And I, I found that really disappointing as well, that coverage. And maybe you have to um, knock the sport of cycling a little bit for there's a bit of distrust among the public about why would you watch it when, you know, the 2000s were full of so many cheats. Uh, maybe they're still recovering from that. But uh, regardless, it's, it's a really good sport to watch now. And I wish uh, the Australian media, not just SBS, covered it more. I would agree with you. And, uh, you know, but, you know, the example of uh, the AFL with the peptide saga, you know, that's just been dismissed. Um, so, so yeah, I don't, I don't know if that's, I think it's just that, uh, you know, it just seems like Australians don't rate, um, cycling as a sport compared to the rest of the world, um, which is you know disappointing. I know Rupert Guinness has been a, a massive, uh, journalist who's, who's well recognized worldwide, um, as an expert journalist who can report on any event and knows all the riders back to front for the last 30 years, 40 years, probably. Um, but you know, it, it, it just amazes me that we just don't give our guys, you know, the accolades they deserve. And it's just such a dominated uh, media for the, you know, it's cricket and, and footy and that's it. Um, no other sports get a go. Mm, yeah. Well, we get into the uh, questions for, for the day. Um, we're going to fly through some questions that we think are really valuable for the listeners to hear. And the first one was something that caught my attention over the last few weeks. Uh, I've said on the podcast a few weeks ago that I'm, personally riding a little bit more and I'm experiencing the difference between riding and running, especially for triathletes. Um, it is, and I found, I have found that when you're on your limit, there is a different in, in fatigue levels when you're running a five kilometer threshold effort, for example, or a 20 minute running effort uh, or longer uh, endurance compared to an endurance cycling effort. And I wanted to get your thoughts on, uh, you know, especially being a former elite um, Ironman you know, what it's like to hold a certain speed or wattage or power um, or effort on the bike and how I, my theory is that you can actually hold it longer on the bike compared to what you can hold um, that lactate level running. So what do you think about that? 
it's a great topic and one that you and I have uh, discussed many times with your brother as well. Um, look, I definitely think the, the effort you put in as a runner, it's a full body effort and you know, you're providing the momentum. Um, whereas on a bike, you're putting the effort through the pedals and the, the wheels are allowing you to, to propel yourself forward. And I think that's the key difference between the two. It's such a grueling thing to run where you're in, you're having to, to generate everything about the, the forward movement. Um, so you don't get these micro fractures of recovery that you get on a bike. And, you know, whether you're running uphill or downhill, whether you're riding uphill or downhill, they're completely different. If you're riding downhill and you're in the hardest race you've ever been, you get recovery. If you're running downhill, you still have to take each step. And it's actually an, an eccentric and concentric contraction up and downhill, which is worse on you um, as a runner. So I just think, I think people forget how much you do get to recover in a, in a cycling rate. Um, we're talking bike races rather than time trials, but time trials, you still got that undulation on the road where there's the pressure is off for fractions of a second. You don't get that in running. It's just constantly on. And, and if, if, if you can't keep up as a runner to the pace that's set, you just drop off um, to, to go back to the pace that you can sustain. And whether that's an 800 or a 5K or a marathon, whereas as a cyclist, you can sit in and, and recover by getting 30% um, um, drafting, you know, just by sitting in for 10 seconds and, and, you know, most cyclists are well-trained to do over-efforts, under-efforts. And, and just by giving yourself these micro-fractures of a, of, a, of a recovery, you're able to sustain efforts for longer because you're getting this recovery. The difference is on a climb, if, you know, the question you've asked me in general cycling, but if I said, let's see how you go on a climb, climb is as close to running as, as possible because on a climb, if you take the pedal, the pressure off the pedals on a climb, you your bike almost stops, and the momentum's gone because of the the angle of of the hill, and that's similar to running. So, so I think hill climbing closely resembles running, but general cycling, there's so many periods where you've got uh, recovery that you don't realise, and that's the difference, and that's why you're able to. It feels like you can sustain high intensity efforts for longer. But in fact, you're not really doing that. You're having lots of little mini rests. Um, and, and the example of the hill climbing shows you when, if, you know, it's constant pressure up the hill. And if you took a rest, your bike will slow down and the, the bunch will leave you um, just like it would as in a running race on a flat course or, or, or whatever the example is. As a runner, if you slow down fractionally, the pack of runners you're running with will just leave you. Mm. Um, does that does that make sense? The difference between the two? Yeah, that that makes it. That's a really good point. And I guess the reason I bring it up is because uh, for me, I feel like it gives you a bit of a mental edge when you are riding, uh, not a hill effort like you're saying, but uh, whether when you're cycling and even just holding an effort over some undulations or in a triathlon setting, holding that sub threshold effort, um, it gives you that mental edge to know that you can stick in there because mentally you just have to hang on a little bit. You know you're going to get a little bit respite. You know you're going to get a little bit rest, and you can. Um, it, it allows you to push on that little bit further. Whereas I know mentally with running, once you start fading with your pace, you you really can't do much about it. You just start, you just, it's just a horrible feeling. And so I guess I would ask, um, 
I know that you want people to always be conservative in all aspects, uh, especially um, especially in a time trial setting or a triathlon setting where you do not want to be fading no matter what the legs swim, bike or run. Um, but would it be, could you say it's more important to be conservative in the, in, in the run compared to the bike? Yeah, just before I answer that question, um, the example I want to give to what we were talking about, um, and and you've you've jumped from you know from a lot of riding, a lot of running in your whole twenty eight years of existence. It's been mainly about running, and all of a sudden you've jumped onto the bike. And as a runner, all runners develop this massive engine that they can sustain threshold because that's all of, that's what they do. In in all sports, you will be good at what you practice. And in running, you practice running at threshold pretty much the majority of the time. Um, all the races are a threshold race, whether it's a 5K, a 10K or a marathon. There's hardly any times when you're surging and, and, and relaxing and surging and relaxing. You know, that does come into tactics a little bit in the elite level. But the majority of time in a running race, you run from A to B as fast as you can. Um, and, and when runners transfer to bike riding, they are incredibly good at holding power for long periods of time. And, and, and they're normally good bike riders because they've got a great engine from all of that running. And then in a, in a bike race, all of a sudden they're getting periods where they rest. So they recover so quick compared to bike riders. Um, and then they can go again. And look, people who've been on our Zwift rides on a Thursday night or have witnessed you jumping on Zwift doing a couple of races from not doing any races and you being able to go with our best riders um, because you're getting, you know, A, you've got a great engine, but B, you're getting little rests um, that enable you to, to know and because you're, you're, you're very clever at tactics already because you've listened to tactics for the last, you know, 25 years about how to do things. You know, that last Thursday night race was, you know, this, for example, there's three hills. You just have to hang on on those three hills and you'll get a, a good opportunity to swing at the end you executed that way better than I did. And, and that's, that's an example of understanding the tactics of, of racing, using your ability um, properly. Um, I don't want to talk about myself, um, but I will say that in terms of conserving, you know, I've listened to you say the word conserve, um, I would say, I don't know, tens of thousands of times <laughs> on throughout, throughout my whole life, uh, especially on these podcasts. Um, and I will say that I think I over-conserve in cycling because I've heard you say it so much. Uh, and I think I was able to perform well in those races because I was hyper-conservative. I really wasn't helping the group out very much because I was trying to over-conserve and so it allowed me to be fresher. Um, but yeah, I guess, um, is, is that still, you know, that part two of the question, uh, yep. is that still accurate that you can um, be less conservative on the bike compared to running, especially for triathletes? Yeah, and that's why I wanted to give that example before I answered the question because that relates exactly to the question. Um, so, so if you're a person with a great engine, you can take way more risks because you know that no matter what happens, you're going to get a little recovery and or you can force a little recovery by sitting in on the wheel and, and making someone else do the work and then you're going to be back to, you know, 100% again within 10 seconds or 20 or 30 seconds to go again. So, so you can be, um, the question you're saying is you've been taught to be conservative and measure your effort. Yes, you can be more um, risk taker as a bike rider compared to a runner. And, and that's one of the things that, you know, as triathletes, 
it's just not worth it. You should not be doing that. You should be measuring your effort from start to finish. And the more times you spike your efforts, the more it's going to hurt you when you come to run. Because running, if, you're, if you've got any levels of fatigue, it's going to be the, the most excruciating experience <laughs> at the end of a triathlon. Whereas, you know, just a pure bike riding, you've got so much more opportunity to take risks because um, coming from that background, and, and that's one of the things why we talk about having the complete rider where he's got threshold, he's got sprint, he's got endurance, he's got all these uh, you know, um, things to his armory um, that he can use. He's got good recovery. Um, and if you're just a sit-on sprinter, you, you are just relying on one thing happening every race. And, and that's, a, that's a really uh, narrow way to race and, and very unenjoyable because you're just relying on uh, the brakes always being brought back and you have no say in the race except for the last hundred meters. And it's fantastic when you win, you know, the rest of the field hate you, but, um, but you know, you just want to have more fun as a bike rider than just that. So it's, it, you know, the point is to, to bring all of the, the components that require in a bike race, um, bring that in your training and, and you will have so much more fun in races and, and you're, you're the example of someone coming with a huge engine. We have plenty of, plenty of really, you know, Julian Painter is a great, uh, an Olympian who's, who's a really good bike rider, but, you know, was a 5K runner um, at Olympic level. And he's got this massive engine. And, and that enables him to be such a good bike rider because he can take huge risks knowing that he'll get a recovery period and he'll be ready to go again when the next attack happens. And, and that's such a, uh, a weapon to have as a bike rider. Um, so yes, to answer the question, you should be taking more risks because there's so many opportunities for you to recover in a bike race. And in terms of uh, being a more complete athlete, you often speak about how riding can complement your running and running can complement your riding, you know, vice versa. Uh, but if you are just a cyclist, um, and this applies to triathletes as well, you know, how do you actually become that more complete athlete, that com more complete um, person who can hold threshold, who can do over efforts and then be able to recover, who can build that massive engine? How do you actually achieve that? Yeah, well, um, you need a program that's going to allow you to do some of those sessions and, you know, there's two things here. Um, you, you can be born physiologically advanced, you know, so your um, VO2 can, you know, the elite riders of the world or, you know, cross-country skiers or the elite in anything, you would, you would say the majority of them are above 85 to 90. So if I'm a VO2 of 44 and I'm competing against someone with 85, no matter what training I do, I'm going to be up against it if it comes down to who's going to sustain threshold effort, whether it's bike riding, whether it's running or whether it's cross-country skiing or swimming. I'm going to be up against it because they're just naturally got better engines. Does that mean I, I don't try? Of course not. You know, tactics come into it, um, especially in bike riding. You know, the, the person who's the best bike rider, you know, should win the race, but it doesn't always happen. As a runner, the person who's the best runner normally will, would, would win the race because tactics aren't as, as important. But, but you can still train the engine. You can get the most out of yourself. And, um, and, you know, areas where you're weak, that's the areas you need to concentrate on. And if, if you don't have an engine, you, you can spend time, but it is going to take time. It's not going to happen in, you know, a four-week block. It, it, it could possibly take four years to build your engine. Um, 
and you know people might laugh at that but but that's a realistic appraisal of someone who's got no threshold ability it, it just doesn't happen overnight and you know i've got countless examples of athletes who we've coached who were absolute crap at time trialing and that's a threshold event on a bike and their weapons as, as a time trialist now but it took four or five years to get them there and patience and consistency and all the things we talk about so so yeah the, you know to answer that question it's it's definitely uh a, an advantage to have some sort of genealogy that's going to you know give you that head start but it doesn't mean that they're the only ones who are going to win races so one question that you've been getting a lot of recently is you know kind of based on that it's your your genealogy kind of impacts your limit um, but also the programming that you do and then how long you stick to it uh, will impact where you can get to and what your ceiling is. You get a lot of people asking you, Jared, where's my ceiling? You know, where, where can I get to? You know, you get a lot of questions, coach, where can you get me to? Um, and how do you go about answering that? I know it depends on the person, but you know, what, what's the process you go through about you know, considering how long someone wants to um, attempt it for, you know, if they want to be an endurance athlete, like you said, do you say to them, it's going to be four years? Uh, I imagine that a lot of people they're thinking much more short-term goals i want to get to this wattage by three months time or i have this race goal and i want to run this time but you know what should you be picking goals based on a wattage you know i want to get to 250 watts or um for two hours or i want to get to sub 12 hour ironman um which which factors should you be thinking about how long should you be thinking about them and one last point on that is um you know, I think a lot of people get deterred from a goal when it's going to take too long. And like you said before, four years might sound too ridiculous. Um, but is a fair point on that, you know, if a goal is only going to take you a year and then you're done with it, it could be kind of boring because you invest all this, all this time and money uh, into a bike, especially in cycling and triathlon. If you achieve your goal in the first year, then you'd have nothing to do for the next five to 10 years. So you probably want to um, span out your goals a little bit over a longer period of time, wouldn't you? Yeah, look, there's such a loaded question, George. I don't even know where to begin. But, um, <laughs> Sorry, yeah. but I, I, think, I think the process is something that people should have as a goal. Um, if you're not going to be – I'm a big goal setter and I want people to have goals and I believe that goal setting is the key to, to anything that you do in life. Is if, if you haven't got a purpose to get up for, you're not going to get up. Um, and so, so that's the main driver. Um, but, but there's, there's – um, there's climbing Everest goals and there's little goals along the way, you know, climbing your local, your local hill sort of thing. Um, so the stepping stones along the way, but you've got to, you've got to love the process. And, and I think um, for me, if it's, if someone's coming to me and they're just wanting a short term outcome, I've got to say it's not as, it's not as inspiring to me as someone who's got, got big goals that might take a long time. And that's a journey then. So we're on a journey and, and that's exciting to me because um, no matter what level you start at, there, you can progress. And, and we have, we see this a lot, thousands of athletes who, who come with a level, who want to go to that level and it might take that particular person A twice as long as person B with the same goal because of their genealogy. But the, the person who's willing to stick stick at it will eventually succeed but they can't be goals that are unrealistic you know i can't say to some 55 year old who says he wants to ride at 6.2 watts per kilo that's his goal well that's just not going to happen 
you know, unless he's got a VO2 of, of 90 still at, at age 55. So, so that's an example of that's just, that's just an unrealistic goal. So, so stepping stones along the way and the journey is the, the thing that I think should be the emphasis um, that, you know, uh, if you've got a passion to, to, to get somewhere, um, you should love the, the process and the journey about achieving it. And, and, and that's what it should be inspiring you to, to, to make you a better athlete. And, and if someone's not improving in our group, I, I've just had some conversations already this week about that. I will do everything I can to find out what is going wrong. What, what are we, what are we missing here? Because um, you know, every every session you do for for a different athlete is not going to get the same result. So, so we've got to find what works for you. So you, Jordan, you you know, we know you've got an engine, but you know, can you replicate you know repeated sprints at at twelve hundred watts? No, you can't because you're not trained in that yet. But that's a goal for you to to be uh, as good at the end as you are throughout the race. And you know, that's that's a really simple thing that we can change by giving you some practice sessions when you're sprinting tired. Um, you know, and we do that in training, you know, we just don't sprint fresh because in races that doesn't happen. Um, so you need to practice things like that. So, so they're just examples of, of how each athlete um, can, can progress through their, their journey, but, but they're going to have, you know, roadblocks along the way. And, and that's where I'm passionate about finding out what, what do we need to change here? What, what's stopping athlete A from getting to where he wants to go? And I'm not saying, um, you know, he wants it quickly. I'm just, it's just not improving, you know, that what we're doing with him is not helping and they're staying the same, which by the way is what happens to 95% of triathletes and, and cyclists day in, day out. I mean, we're quite happy with that, but the people who come to us, they come to us because they want to improve. And, you know, that's our success is not getting people to win things, although that's a bonus, but just to improve themselves and show that they can go from 250 watts to 275. But the point I'm making is you you have to be uh, on board with the journey and the process and have little mini goals along the journey for your big goal. So that's kind of how I would answer that question. Um, yeah, definitely. Would, would you encourage people to have, um, well, are you really pushing athletes to have both short-term and longer-term goals at the same time and tell you what they are? You know, do you really want athletes to um, have a short-term six-month goal but then say to you, but I also want to be here in three years? Yeah, definitely. And look, most of the goals that athletes come to us are short-term anyway. Um, you know, someone will say, I want to do Amy's Grand Fondo. I want to do three peaks or as a triathlete, I want to do the, the first Olympic distance of the season or half Ironman, or I want to do an Ironman. And you and I know that people ask us to do an Ironman in six months and, and some of them have never done one before. So, so that's a big goal with such a short time limit. Um, so, so, you know, I would always direct them to say, why don't you have a lot of little goals before that push your Ironman goal back another year and and tick off some some olympic and then tip tick tip off some 70.3s so that you're actually uh getting some success along the journey and you're getting um experience in the execution of those events and you know over the weekend we just did a, a double brick session where you know guys really uh texted me saying far out that was so valuable because it it just gave me an idea of where my power numbers are for 
for that and where I could run pace off the bike, you know. And by doing that in a training session that was really scripted as a race, um, your own personal race, um, you know, preparation before the event, uh, getting your gear ready, your nutrition, thinking about the pace and the power you're going to ride at and trying to do it. And then at the end going, well, did I do it? Did I set the race plan properly? All of that was, was just so valuable. And they're little stepping stone goals along the journey. So that when it comes to the real thing, the A, the A day, you're pretty confident that you'll execute and get the result you want. So, so that's the kind of the way I look at it. And, um, and, and, and if I'm not enjoying the process or the journey, I, I definitely don't get the results. And that's happened to me many times where I've just gone through the motions, as they say, instead of being an active participant. There's two differences there. You know, you use the criterion race. You can just be part of the bunch rolling around an hour on a Thursday night, or you can be a player where you're dictating things, you're attacking, you're following, you're jumping. Um, so, you know, 10% of the people are dictating the race and 90% are followers. Um, which one do you want to be? Um, so that's how you should be uh, uh, scheduling your, your, your goals and your mini goals and, and the journey in the process. That, that's, that's how I, I think that's how it should be for, for most athletes. And if they, if they get that um, right, then I'm sure, you know, they will enjoy the, the experience of being just a recreational uh, runner or swimmer or triathlete or rider and really get the most out of themselves and their sport. And, and it will be enjoyable. Um, and that takes away that negativity all the time of, oh, I'm, you know, I'm not improving and, you know, things aren't going well. And, you know, this year is a classic example for that um, with, with so many things uh, being against um, everybody in the world. But you've seen people stand up and, and go, no, I'm going to plan something that I've got control of, which is my training. There may not be any races, but, you know, I'm going to control the controllables. And boy, you know, our weekend experience where we did some trials outdoors for the first time was incredible to see how well, I think we had on one particular course, a hundred percent improvement on every rider who went in the, into the time trial. They beat their previous time, which was in the middle of lockdown. Um, and this is the first time they've been out on the road for the majority of them for, you know, sometimes eight, 10 weeks. And it was, it was a real classic example of uh, people um, taking control of their own destiny. So to finish off, do you personally have um, three plus year goals, four year goals, like where you're going to be in three, four, five years with your cycling performances? Yeah, look, um, definitely my, my goal is to stay fit and healthy. That is the number one goal that I have. And, and I was actually thinking about it the other day. It's funny you asked that question because we didn't discuss this um, a question without notice, which I love um, <laughs> because every, every question you can, you can have, you know, and I might not know the answer, but uh, for me, I was thinking about this the other day and there's a lot of things that I've ticked off um, that I'm really satisfied with in, in what I've done with my riding and triathlon and running and all those things. But definitely my number one goal is to stay healthy and fit because I've seen, you know, my brother's going through incredible illness at the moment and, and you just, you just really realize how valuable uh, every moment you've got when you're healthy is. And, and my goal is to stay in that shape that I can have a full and functioning life. And, you know, I just had a new uh, granddaughter born and you want to be around for those things. So, so my mentally, uh, my men mental approach to that is it, it sounds quite general to be healthy and fit, but, 
but I'm not going to get out of bed because I want to be healthy and fit to go training. Um, I definitely put races in front of myself, which will give me the health and fitness I want, but it makes me get out of bed. Um, and without those goals, I'm more than likely to go, oh, I don't feel like it uh, today at six o'clock when the alarm goes off or 5.30. Mm. Um, and I'm more, I'm more than likely going to be less consistent. So, so my number one goal has always been lately to, to really look after my health and fitness. And the only way I can do that for myself is to put little um, comp com competitive events where I detest losing uh, more than I, than I, you know, care, care to like. So um, it, it, it really is a driver for me um, to get the ultimate goal, which is to stay healthy. That's a really good way to finish. And I think that's a really important question that we could all ask ourselves either in the short term uh, and thinking about the long term, you know, what's going to get you out of bed in the short term and what's going to get you out of the bed in two, three, four, five years. That's a really good way to finish. Um, I think we'll leave it there. Thank you very much for listening, everyone. And we'll see you on the podcast next week.